what is the church supposed to be? So we've been exploring the book of Acts. We've been looking at the early church. And I think that we have actually made some positive changes as a church to look more like the early church. You may not realize that these things are happening, but I think they are happening over the several weeks that we've been going through it. Things like eating meals together. I know it's a little ironic that we're not going to eat together today, but we have literally ate meals together after church for how many weeks in a row now? A lot. And we mixed it up, and we're going to continue to do that. We're just taking a break today because this was a heavy week of eating with Sukkot and all that. We started celebrating. Our goal was to celebrate the fall Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. We did that. Bless you. We quit focusing so much on who's not here, those that don't want to listen like the early church. The people that didn't want to listen, Peter didn't waste any time. He just kept going with those that wanted it. We're focusing on those that want this, that want the family, that want the relationships, that want help. We're enduring persecution. It may not be the type of persecution that, we, that Peter, Paul, all those guys saw. But we are still enduring our own persecution. I think we've said this before. We're going to go, what was it like to live like that time when Jesus stood before you? And they're going to say, what was it like to live with the Holy Spirit inside you? We take for granted what we're experiencing. They didn't get to experience. Maybe the same with persecution. We might say, what was it like when you literally had to fear for your life? And they might say, what was it like when your foods were designed to tear your body down? What was it like when your government was against you but made you feel good about it? I don't know what those things are going to be, but we are enduring persecution. The enemy is still trying to wear us down, wear us out, make us give up, and we're digging in harder. We're learning to embrace, remember the stabs in the back? We're learning to embrace the stabs in the back. And as Acts said, rejoice, as Peter said, rejoice that God counts us worthy to suffer disgrace for Jesus. So I believe that each of you in here, I know your lives, right? We're all enduring persecutions of some sort. But I think we're really doing a good job as a family of helping each other through those persecutions. So I just want to stop and thank you and tell you that I am proud of you. I'm very thankful. When we started this journey, we made it clear we're going to take it seriously. But I feel like you guys have taken it seriously too, and I think God has blessed our journey and I think this is the best place we've ever been as a church family. And I just want to take a minute and thank God and thank you guys for digging in, believing in this thing, that we could be like the early church. Do we have work to do? Of course. But we're making the changes that God is showing us. So I believe our grade has been raised. Remember I gave us like a C plus? I gave the church of the, uh, of the you know, American church like an F. <laughs> I think our grade is raising. We've gotten a little extra credit. We've gotten to retake some tests, and our grade is raising. So, again, I want to thank you guys for trusting us to implement this model as best we can. I want to thank you for trusting us and you for having a desire to be better in a crazy world. Most people are just trying to tread water, just trying to survive, squeak into heaven. But you guys are digging in to be better, to do more. So we're going to keep going, we're going to keep learning, we're going to keep evaluating, we're going to keep making changes as necessary. So today, if you got your Bible, jump to Acts chapter 6. It has taken us 11 weeks to get to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to hit two chapters today. 
told you it was going to be long. <laughs> I have two people that are excited. It's not going to be long, I promise. It's going to be somewhere in between. <laughs> so we pick up in Acts 6 today. We see the first church is growing, and guess what? They had issues. It's okay to have issues in the church, okay? They had a little controversy, some disagreements. The words used here in my translation is they had rumblings of discontent. Have any of you ever been discontent in your church, whether here or anywhere else? It's okay. They have rumblings of discontent in the first church. It doesn't mean we're doing something wrong if there's a little bit of controversy, if there's a little bit of discontent but it matters what we do with it. And that's what we're going to get to see today. See, here's the problem we have in church. You know what the biggest problem we have in church is? Humans are running it. Humans are attending it. And when we find humans, we find all sorts of opportunities to find issues, controversy, disagreements, right? So the early church had it too. So I'm hoping that will give us a little bit of comfort and grace for each other. They experienced it. It's okay if we do too. But they didn't dwell on it. We see once again, they did not dwell on the negative. They identified the problem and they fixed it. They created a fix. So if we have an issue and you have discontent, help us be a part of creating a solution to fix that discontent. Okay? This was new for them. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to experience this growth. They didn't know these problems that came at them kind of unforeseen. So when they were identified, they just had to deal with them, address them. And so will we. But we never see the early church leaders get mad, upset, yelling at anybody. We don't see them getting critical of people. They just came up with a solution. Okay, so Acts 6 verse 1 tells us the believers were multiplying. Rumblings of discontent are occurring and specifically, this was around widows getting food. This is a big deal. For us, we don't have that problem. I don't know of any of you going hungry that you're relying on me to provide your food. But for them, this was a big deal because the widows were dependent upon the church to get their food. So this discontent, this rumbling was over something pretty major. This wasn't, I don't like the order of your services. I don't like that you maybe sleep in a tent for two nights although they would have done that willingly for all seven. Side note, this is important. So we got these Jewish Hebrew-speaking believers over here, and then we got these Gentile Greek-speaking believers, and one of the people thinks they're not getting treated fairly. The Greek-speaking widows thought they weren't getting their fair share of the food distribution. It's like those Jewish-speaking widows, they're getting preferential treatment because they're Jewish. We're not getting what we deserve. So the question is, have you ever heard anyone in a church environment thinking they're not getting treated right? They're not getting the attention they deserve? They're not getting what they want out of something? So apparently this has been a problem for 2,000 plus years. So that should give us some comfort again. Acts 6, verse 2, it says, So the 12, so remember at this point there are 12 church leaders, the 12 apostles, so the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. 
So they understood they had a purpose. My purpose is to teach, not to run the food program. That's what they're telling them. So brothers select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. So there are some contingencies there, full of the Spirit. That's important. They're full of wisdom. And we'll give them this responsibility. Now the apostles can spend, we can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. So Peter, the other 11, said, I've got a purpose in this church environment. I've got a role, and I understand my role. And I'm not going to set my role aside and my purpose aside and deal with the emergency of the day. I'm not going to set my gifts aside, my role aside, to deal with the controversy of today. I'm just going to assign someone else to deal with the emergency. This is an emergency when you don't get food. So they said, we're going we're to assign this to somebody else. Guess what? Teaching everyone about Jesus as your Savior is an emergency too. To them and to us. People are dying every day. People we know are dying every day. It is an emergency for some of us to be teaching the Word. It is an emergency for some to be making sure needs are met. Both were important, but the, the apostles understood their role and they delegated. They understood that God needed them to do what they were supposed to do. We're supposed to teach, we're supposed to pray. And they understood that God gifted other people to do other things, like make sure everybody gets fed. So, as I've done with most things we've addressed in Acts, I'm going to spend a minute or two comparing this to the 21st century church. And then to us. So forget us for a second. Let's go ahead and judge the church. Y'all ready to judge the church? Honestly, I think there are two extremes that happen, I'm not saying every church falls into these two extremes, but these are the two typical extremes that I see, and I think they're equally biblically wrong. Extreme one, mega church. You got a pastor, and then you got a hundred other pastors, and then you got the people. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were doing an ordination service, I went through some example pastor names? That was from one church. You guys remember that? And it was just this crazy list. There was a pastor over sports ministry because everything has to be called a ministry to be holy in church, right? They had a pastor over building services. It takes a pastor to maintain those buildings. I'm not sure they're using the right terms for those roles as I see them laid out in Scripture. I don't think it takes a pastor to oversee a building, but that's not to say that it's bad to delegate responsibilities. If you've got a big, huge church... You need staff to delegate things to to get things done, right? That all makes sense. Nothing's bad there. But what happens when you got a pastor that's so far removed from the common people? There's no connection between the main pastor and the people. How in the world can I get up here and talk to you every Sunday if I'm not connected to you and don't know what your issues are? It's impossible. You have to be connected, and I think that's the problem with that extreme is we got so many people doing so many different things that there's a huge disconnect. The shepherd has to be with the sheep. So what we see here is while Peter and the 11 put this into place, they didn't elevate themselves up to a pedestal that disconnected them from the people. So we got good delegation, bad disconnect from the people in this example. Okay? Extreme two, small church. Anybody ever been a part of a small church and you expected the pastor to do everything? Surely you have. 
surely. I'm going to tell you a true story I heard. I'm not going to say who I heard it from. I didn't hear it that long ago. They said, can you believe we drove by the pastor's house and we saw him out working in his flower beds. There are sick people in the hospital and people with needs and he's out working in his flower beds. And I'm like, well, why didn't you go to the hospital and visit them then? But that's his job. It's what we pay him for. Now, y'all probably picked up by now that I give a lot of true family examples. <laughs> I'm serious. So-and-so's in the hospital. Why is the pastor working in his flower beds? He's got a job to do. He needs to be filling every need. Many of us maybe grew up in this environment, but this is a bad extreme. There's nothing in this book of Acts that says Peter and the other 11 were responsible for doing everything. The whole point of this story is we have a job to do, so we have to delegate others to do what we don't have time to do. Okay? So neither of these extremes are healthy or biblical. We have seven men identified to take care of the food distribution. We really don't know how many people there are at this point. It's not a small church, by the way. It's, it's grown. But at this point, we really don't know how many people, but Peter said, let's delegate this responsibility to people we trust so that we can do our job. So, for a successful church, we all have to carry responsibilities and roles. And there has to be delegation. So, let's take a look at Harvest at the Silos. This is an area we need to make some changes in. It's not that we aren't delegating, but I'm going to be very, very blunt and honest with you on why we need to make changes. And I don't know what all they are yet. When we started this church, we knew it was going to be tough to run a wedding venue or normal lives where I could actually work in flower beds if I wanted to and try to lead a church. So we were very heavy in delegation. We delegated stuff left and right. And let's cut to the chase. We gave the responsibility sometimes to the wrong people. We trusted the wrong people. We had the right idea, the wrong folks sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. Plus, we had some good people that said, I'll take this on. But when they didn't follow through on what they were asked to do, we felt bad about getting on to them because they're just volunteers, right? I didn't want to hurt their feelings, so we just didn't address it. So I'm trying to tell you we had some issues. And then about a year and a half ago, we scaled things back. We haven't been able to do all the things that we want to do out in our community and the things that we see visions to do. And our family has owned a decent part of what, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about from a year and a half up until recent. We have had to own a lot of things. We kind of took back the delegation because we felt like the things we had delegated to people were hurting people. So we took things back, we scaled things back, and it's not biblical. So we're going to make some changes here. We don't want to assign to the wrong people, nor do we want to own everything. So we've kind of spent what I'm going to say the last year and a half sort of riding out a storm. We're allowing God to rebuild with new people. There's over half of you weren't even here a year and a half ago. And I praise God. I praise God that he is rebuilding with new people that are going to help us and see this vision. Now, we're getting close. We're not going to do it today, but we're going to start laying out 
And we're going to try to target seven areas and seven responsibilities that we want to move forward with in 2023. Again, I'm not going to lay it out today. The goal today is to look at what the early church did, evaluate where we are, be honest that we need to change, and then we'll start laying this out over the next couple of weeks or months as we identify areas and people that we're going to ask to own it. And own it means own it. Own it means, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example. Chris Terry decided to own coffee. Guess who hadn't had to buy coffee since he owned it? Guess who often had to run to Dollar General on Sunday morning because we didn't have coffee because we had so many things going on? Guess who, when there was a week that he knew he couldn't be here, he brought his soon-to-be wife in early with him and trained her so she could do it seamlessly last week while he was out of town? That's owning something. Okay? That's me not having to go, oh, my gosh, how are we going to make coffee today? How are we going to do this? So, yes, we can give him a hand clap, and this isn't to prop him up. It's to say... We're going to coach these areas up and select people and ask them to own things to help out this family, okay? But you guys are servants. We are blessed with servants. And I can't tell you how thankful I am. So I don't want this to sound like a beat you up moment. This is kind of a beat me up moment that I've taken everything back and I've got to develop trust to push it back out again. Is that clear? This is not a beat anybody up but me, okay? All right, get back to Acts, chapter 5, chapter 6, verse 5. There is a key phrase that I don't want to overlook here. It says, everyone liked this idea, and they chose the men. So they had a little controversy. Peter said, we're going to, or Peter and the guy, we don't really know who said it, stepped up and said, we're going to delegate, and everyone liked the idea. This means that the people understood that Peter and the 11 couldn't do everything. See, that small church example where they want the pastor doing everything, they wouldn't have liked the idea of the, of the pastor delegating, right? But everyone in Acts chapter 6 liked the idea. They understood their roles. They understood that responsibilities had to be distributed to get things done. So, we look at the military, right? We all understand that, even if we haven't been in the military. Never been in the military, but we understand the military. A well-prepared military has people with different specialties that understand their roles, right? A general doesn't try to do a sergeant's job. A sergeant doesn't try to do a general's job. A private doesn't try to do a sergeant's job. They all have these definitions, these roles, and they're all equally important in making the whole thing work. But even within that structure, different groups have different specialties and responsibilities. That makes sense to us, right? But guess what? We're an army too. It's a spiritual warfare army, not the physical United States army or another country's army. So the more we can mimic this structure and what's laid out in Acts, the more effective we will be at reaching our community. Okay? Everyone liked the idea, so I'm going to ask you guys to like the ideas that God puts on our hearts. If I delegate something to someone, or we do, you come to me, you talk about that thing, I ask you to, to contact so-and-so, so if I say I'm going to delegate something to Parker, and then you come to me and ask me about it, and I say go talk to Parker, you can't let that hurt your feelings. You got to realize that it's going to take delegation. Have I made that point clear? 
you can't think, well, Jason didn't do enough. He, he didn't help me. I did help you. I got you to the right person that can do a much better job than me. But the enemy is going to be there trying to create discontent, try to make us think I don't care enough about you. The enemy is going to keep lying to us, so we have to be on the same page on this. Okay, so they chose seven men, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, probably not spelling, pronouncing these right, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch. These men were chosen, they were agreed upon, they were prayed over with the laying of hands, and God's message continued to spread. So the number of believers in Jesus is spreading, even to the point that Jewish priests are being converted to believers. That's what we're praying for right now. There is a movement of Jewish priests becoming Christians in Israel. That's what's happening back then, too. So big things are happening. But they were figuring it out as they went, so that should give us some grace. They didn't beat themselves up when they had grumblings. They fixed the issues. But I want to go back, and I want to dig into those, those seven men. There's two names that stick out to me. How many of you have heard of Stephen? How many of you have heard of Nicholas of Antioch before today or before reading through our Bible reading last year? Okay? So Stephen. Stephen is singled out. It's special. So of those seven, there was still one that was special. He was a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit. But guys, we're about to see his ministry time be extremely short. Okay? As we finish chapter 6 and cover chapter 7, we're going to see his ministry time be very short, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But then we got this guy named Nicholas of Antioch. What, who, who the heck is this guy, and why does he stand out? Why would we care who he is? Do you remember back in Sermon 1 of looking at the church? Anybody remember way back then? Sermon 1, we looked at what Jesus said to the churches in Revelations 2 and 3. We said if we're going to look at what the church is supposed to be, then we might want to go to Revelations and see what Jesus thought the church should be, what he was happy with, what he was not happy with. You guys remember that? Okay. The first church address was the church in Ephesus. And if you remember the church in Ephesus, Jesus pointed out all kinds of things they were doing right. He said, you're hardworking, you're patiently enduring, you don't tolerate evil people, you don't tolerate liars, you patiently suffer for me. These are all good biblical things. But I have this complaint. You don't love me the way you used to. You don't love each other the way you used to. So Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus, you're doing all this good stuff. But at the core, you've got to remember to love me the way you love me first. And you've got to remember to love each other. Then you do these other things. Right? But here's an interesting little thing at the end. So he tells them, here's the good things you're doing. Here's the thing I've got against you. But then Jesus says, but you do have this in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. These Nicolaitans that Jesus is chastising in Revelation are the followers of Nicholas of Antioch, okay? The person we're talking about in Acts chapter 6. So Nicholas goes from this well-respected, full of the spirit and wisdom, because that's what it said all seven men had, well-respected, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, to leading a whole group of people astray. To the point that he gets directly in the crosshairs of Jesus. Hang on a minute. I'm going to tell you why that's important. I think there's a lot packed into this statement. 
Just because someone is doing good today and full of the Spirit and well-respected, just because they're doing good today doesn't mean we should follow them tomorrow. Okay? Being a believer, specifically here a leader, full of faith, wisdom, and the Spirit is not something you get once and it magically stays with you forever. It's something you have to work hard at. Okay? So I don't want you to look at people and say, well, I'm following this person now. When are they going to go wrong like Nicholas? That's not the point. The point is, as a leader, you have to constantly be working not to become Nicholas. Remember how many times we're warned about not falling away? This is going to shoot some holes in that once saved, always saved theory again when I'm pointing to a man that has fallen away. He went from a leader in the church to Jesus chastising him, saying, I hate the evil deeds that his followers do. Okay? Each of us has to seek God. We have to seek the Holy Spirit all the time. We have to be around each other and hold each other accountable. And this is proof that Satan has a goal to lead church leaders astray. You ever seen a church leader be led astray? So at this point, we have 19 named leaders of the church, the 12 apostles and seven new people, okay? We got 19 leaders. But by the time we get to Revelation, one of them is being called out by Jesus because of the evil deeds he's done to lead someone astray. It's a big deal. And that's encouragement to me. Why is that encouragement to me? I'm not encouraged that Nicholas started his own denomination, so to speak, and led some people astray. Nicholas kind of started his own thing and said, I can do this better, went down the wrong path and took people with him away from Jesus, away from the true Jesus. I'm not encouraged by that. I'm encouraged because of the seven they picked, one dies in the next chapter and one goes astray by revelation. That means it's okay if we're not perfect in picking our church leaders. And that takes a lot of pressure off me because, see, a lot of that retreating is because I picked the wrong people. And when they led people astray, and I'm going to try to be very careful not to use an actual example, but you guys know the examples. When they led people astray, I beat myself up for picking the wrong person. But now I've got this biblical example that they did it too. They picked somebody that's going to die very soon, and they picked somebody that Jesus is going to be very upset with later on in Revelation. That takes pressure off me. So if Peter and the 11 chose people that wouldn't be there later, then I can have grace for myself, and you guys can have grace for yourself if you ever choose the wrong leaders. I've spent a lot of time questioning myself. Wendy spent time questioning herself. We've all spent time questioning ourselves. When we choose, to lead to, when we choose someone to lead something, we trust them, and then we watch them stab us and lie about us, we just took that on as we did wrong instead of realizing they're just like Nicholas. They, were, they need to be let go to do their own thing. That's not on me. It's not on Peter and the other 11 that Nicholas took off and led the Nicolaitans astray. It's on us to do our job to the best of our ability, and if somebody goes astray, we can't help that. I'm not saying I don't carry compassion or a burden for that. I'm just saying I can't put that on me. So, we're going to choose our leaders, we're going to invest in our leaders, we're going to coach our leaders, and if they're misled by the enemy and they choose to listen to the enemy, we're going to let them go. That's tough to say, but it's going to happen. 
Because it sounds to me like the way Jesus talked in Revelation, he'll take care of Nicholas. I don't have to take care of Nicholas, so to speak. He says he hates their evil deeds. I don't want to be a part of that. So two things. I can't control, we can't control when someone's led astray. And it's a reminder that we all need to be on guard for the enemy's tactics. He's going to constantly be coming against us trying to take us out. All right. Let's get back to Stephen. Because Stephen was special. Something special about him. We're told in verse 5 that he's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 8, we're told he's full of God's grace and power, the Holy Spirit's power. He performed many miracles and signs among the people. So Stephen is set apart. Stephen is set apart from the other six. He was special. He's not one of the original 12, but he's set apart for God. And I love this because it shows me that God can send us a special person whenever he wants to do special things in this church. It doesn't have to be one of the established founders, leaders, because there's got to be somebody sitting here right now. This the next Stephen to stand up, to rise up and do something that you don't even think you can do. And that's exciting. One of you sitting right here, and maybe more of one of you is a Stephen, and that's exciting because I can have anticipation that God's going to bring us these people that are going to step into the Holy Spirit's power and do great things. And guess what? If it takes you a year or two to get there, it's okay. We're not asking you to step in day one and just take off running. Um, It's the growth thing. It's the fact that two people can stand now and do communion. That's growth. Maybe God's raising up the next Stevens there. It's the fact that a man can come in unchurched and start making coffee, and God's raising up the next Steven. And I could go on and on. It's Ella going to her school and her teacher talking to Jennifer and saying, this girl's witnessing to people in her school. That's the Stevens that God can bring us, and that's exciting. So Stevens doing some miracles. Oh, my gosh, and it's getting the attention of some religious church people again. Here we go with church people, and they start debating him. So they see him doing signs and miracles. They see he's full of wisdom, and rather than get on board with him, they just start arguing with him. Have we seen this before in Acts before now? Do we see this today in the American church? Yes. It says the wisdom given to him by the Holy Spirit See, it creates a problem for them during their debate. It says in verse 10, this is chapter 7, verse 10, it says, uh, I don't even know what chapter we're in now. I think we're in chapter 7. It says, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So this guy shows up. He's full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. You would think, wow, maybe we should listen to this guy. And they go, no, we're going to debate him. We're going to argue with him. You would think this is the time they would say, let me look inward. Let me see if I need to change some things. Maybe I should listen to this guy. Nope, going to win the argument at all costs. I can't win the argument against the Holy Spirit's power in him. I can't win against his wisdom. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get some folks to lie about him. You ever been lied about by church people when you did nothing wrong? If you haven't, come hang out with us for a few days, and I can give you an education in it. So verse 11 says, So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. So we can't beat him. 
Let's get some other people to lie about him. Instead of saying, let me make some changes, let me see that Holy Spirit and that power and that wisdom and make some changes, they say, let's get somebody to lie about him. See, we aren't lying. It's the other people that are lying, right? They're the ones sinning. It gets everybody riled up, and they do what they do best in the early church. The church arrests the church again. The church leaders, the religious leaders, come and arrest Stephen. Not only that, but these lying witnesses go with him, and they keep lying right to his face. So, have you ever been lied about behind your back? Raise your hand. Has it ever caused undue things to happen, or things to happen to you you didn't deserve? Has the lying person ever come with you and kept lying right in front of your face? Most of the time, not. Right? But that's what's happening to Stephen. They just come on. And what does Stephen do? Never once defends himself. Never once. He never defended himself. He did not stoop to their level. In verse 15, it says, At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Okay, so this guy, we can't out-debate him. He's full of wisdom, Holy Spirit's power. We're going to get people to lie about him. When we arrest him, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't stoop to their level, and now his face is shining as bright as an angel's. And they still didn't say, maybe this guy's okay. They could see the glory of God on him, but they were stubborn. As Peyton would say, they were stiff-necked. And they wanted their opposition destroyed at all costs. How stubborn can people be? And then we look at the church today and church leaders, and we see similar things, and we see people that can't see Jesus instead of their religious ways, and we say, my gosh, how stubborn can people be when it's laid out in black and white? But we're facing the same thing in the early churches. This is just a reiteration of something we preached on two or three times over the last couple weeks. Okay, we were in chapter 6 because now we're moving into chapter 7. Sorry, I got a little bit off base there. They asked Stephen, is this true? So Stephen's not defending himself, but they ask him, is this true? Have you said these things against Moses? Have you said these things against God? And Stephen doesn't say, no, I didn't say it. He spends the next 48 verses, verses 2 through 50, telling them about the history of their people. Here's what I teach about these things. Here's Abraham. Here's the covenant of circumcision. Here's what Joseph did. Here's delivery from Egypt through the leadership of Moses. Here's King David. Here's King Solomon. Here's the temple building. In other words, Stephen takes them back through their heritage. He says, I'm teaching the same things about Moses and God that you are. So he doesn't defend himself saying, no, I didn't say those things. Here's what I say. I know all this history. I'm teaching it correctly. It's not blasphemy. But then, in verse 51, he changes a little bit, and he says, You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart. See, he didn't defend himself. He turned it back on them. I know what I'm saying. I know it's true. You're the stubborn people. You're the heathen at heart. You're the ones deaf to the truth. And he says, Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. And he says, name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. How many of y'all want to be prophets? They endure persecution. It's not a fun place to be. 
And it says right here, Stephen says, is there even one? Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Not only did you persecute them, you killed them because they talked about Jesus, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and killed, murdered. So Stephen is saying, don't try to catch me on this technicality of blasphemy. I know all the history, but you're resisting the power of the Holy Spirit. You're doing the same thing to me that the prophets of old have, ha have had happen to them. You're the one rejecting the Holy Spirit. And he says, you deliberately, this is verse 53, he says, you deliberately disobey God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. So Stephen is saying, guys, you can accuse me of lying. But I know the history, and I know the Holy Spirit that my Jesus gave me when he left. You're the ones rejecting it. He had the boldness to challenge them and say, you're the ones that are wrong. You're the ones that are hypocrites. And did they repent? No. Did they change? No. So what do we have? Same story, different character. The church is arresting and persecuting the church at all costs. They will lie about you, accuse you of things because they don't like the message of the true Jesus. And it says the leaders got mad. They shook their fist at them. And guys, if you have tuned out, tune in because this is the best part. Verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven so you got all these religious leaders standing there with their fists drawn. He stares into heaven, and he sees the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. See, in the middle of persecution, they're shaking their fist at him. Stephen stands firm, and he finds God in the middle of the crisis. Earlier this morning, Wendy was praying, help us to keep our eyes on you, God, not left or right, not on the chaos, but on you. And that's what Stephen did. In the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the persecution, he looked up and he found God and he saw Jesus and he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. And you guys know what's about to happen to him. See, this is the worst moment of his life. He's in the middle of the worst thing that's ever going to happen in his physical life. And he chose to look up and find God and find Jesus, not to look at the chaos. Do you get that? How many of you are dealing with chaos in your life? How many of you are being persecuted? How many of you hate your boss, your job, whatever? Your family's persecuting you. Are you staring at that? Or are you staring at God and saying, I don't care what happens around me? See, Stephen understood that scripture where, it says, where Jesus said, be fearful of the one that can kill your soul, not the one that can kill your body. He chose to look up. What's that? Which part? The whole thing? We'll start back in Acts chapter 6. No. <laughs> oh, Jesus said, don't be... He said, fear the one that can kill your soul, not the one that can kill your body. And I'm sorry, I don't know where that scripture is off the top of my head. In other words, don't fear man. Oh, man can kill you, but man can't kill your soul. Only God can kill your soul. Look up, find God, fear God, be in awe and respect of God. Don't worry about what man can do. Oh, yeah, easy for Stephen to do while he's about to get stoned. Right? He set the example. 
He chose to look up and see the Trinity instead of the problems around him. There's your message of hope. You're about to die. Find Jesus. Do you want to go to church and get this false message of hope? You're going to have a great week. You're going to be blessed because you tithe well this week, and then you have a week from hell. Or do you want this message of hope that's true hope out of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says when you get in bad times, when people are coming against you, even if it's the church, look up, find God, find Jesus. That's your message of hope because they're about to kill this man. Hopefully none of y'all are going to face that this week, and I'm being serious. But if you are, there's your message of hope. Even in death, you find Jesus. All right. Ready for a couple side notes? Sure. (laughs) You're getting ahead of me. Thank you, son. Interesting side note, number one, if you are still struggling with our introduction of Jewish traditions into this church, I want you to look at Stephen. Stephen was a leader of the first church, and he addressed the people that he was talking to Jesus about. He's taking Jesus to them by telling them about the Jewish traditions. He could have said, you know what, none of that stuff about Moses matters because Jesus replaced that. It's a renewed covenant, as Peyton said, not a new covenant. Mistranslated word. It is not a new covenant. It is a renewed covenant. Big difference in those two words. Why didn't Stephen say, forget Moses? Who cares what I said about Moses? It's been replaced by Jesus. Here's Jesus. No, he didn't. He said, here's the history of our people from Abraham to Holy Spirit. The whole message was important. Second point. Going to get a little weird. I'm just going to be honest with you. He told them about circumcision. How many of you know what circumcision is? Sorry for what the thoughts I'm putting in your mind and what few parents might have to explain to their children later. But guess what we still do as a tradition in America today? Circumcision. But wait, we don't, we don't do it from the Jewish tradition, right? We do it because it's physically cleaner, right? Oh, kind of like not eating the bottom dwellers of the world like pig and shrimp and catfish. It's almost like God said, I know some things that will make you healthier. Here they are. So I'm just making an interesting side note that nobody, everybody has a problem with wanting to eat kosher and all that and thinking it's weird, but nobody has a problem that everybody in America pretty much is circumcised at birth. Side note, sorry for the grossness. So I might have to give you a minute to let you come back to Acts chapter 7. <laughs> let that sink in for a moment. Let's get back to Stephen. <laughs> they don't like what they hear. They don't like what he says. You know what they do in verse 57? They're like little kids. They put their hands over their ears and began shouting. Seriously, they acted like little kids. Not everybody wants to hear our message about the true Yeshua, about the church and what it's supposed to be. These people who were experts in it were literally putting their hands over their ears. I can't hear you, Stephen. I cannot hear what you're saying. 
Do you feel like some of the people you talk to do that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> they literally, they may not literally put their hands over their ears, but they will refuse to listen to us, and that's okay. Here's where Parker was going. Then it says, this is the end of verse 57 going into 58 through 60. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. Okay. Anybody ever been stoned? Okay, praise God. No one's endured being stoned in here. I mean, I got stoned one time with like three for my brother, and I got a scar to prove it, but that's irrelevant. Stoning is a slow, painful process. It said they drug him out of the city, and they began to stone him. This wasn't going to happen in two or three minutes. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. This was going to be a long enough activity that they're like, boys, it's going to be a little hot here. We're going to have to take off some clothing layers here because we're going to be here for a little while stoning this guy. And they threw their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. Anybody know who Saul was about to be later on? Paul. So we haven't even reached the point of the early church where Paul gets converted. Saul stands there and watches this happen. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. See, when he kept his focus on Jesus the whole time, he actually gained compassion for those that were killing him. I want you to think about that for a minute. You got a coworker that's tormenting you? Boss? Focus on Jesus. You got an ex? Anybody in here? Don't raise your hand. Anybody got an ex that's tormenting the crap out of them? <laughs> I'm thinking of one specifically. Um, focus on Jesus. Don't focus on them. You got a child tormenting you or a family member tormenting you? I don't mean like a little child. I'm talking about... <laughs> One parent back there going, yes, and your children are awesome children. You got a child that's tormenting you by rejecting you or a family member rejecting you and you don't deserve it? Keep your focus on Jesus. You got a church person that's hurt you? Keep your focus on Jesus. See, he had compassion for those that hurt him. And you can have compassion for someone who hurt you without going back and hanging out with them. It didn't say, he said, hey, quit stoning me so we can go to dinner together, boys. <laughs> Put your coats back on. He said, Jesus, don't charge them with this sin. He had compassion for the people that didn't get the message. So forgiving the message and people don't get it, keep your eyes focused on Jesus and have compassion. Feel sorry for them that they're not getting it. You may endure a circumstance you don't like, you don't want. I don't think Stephen wanted to be killed. He just got named as a church leader. He was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And now he's dying. And things just changed. See, the church had arrested Peter. They arrested John and the gang three times, but they hadn't killed anybody. And this just escalated. Now they've killed Stephen, and this opens the door for persecution like they've never seen before. Now, we've covered a lot today. Okay, we're about to end. The workload was distributed. That's important. We need to work on that. Religious people are still coming against the people that are true Yeshua, Jesus followers. And now we see the early believers are starting to ri seriously risk death. But they were willing to die for their faith in Jesus. 
And the thing that I want you to remember, that I hope you remember, I hope you remember a lot, but the thing I really, really, really want you to remember, if nothing else, is no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter who's attacking you, no matter how bad it is, no matter how often it's happening, you have a choice. You can focus on that storm, or you can look up and say, I see the heavens open, and I see Jesus at the right hand. Stephen didn't fight back. He didn't argue back. He just looked up and said, I see you, Lord. I see you. No matter what happens, I see you. And that's where our focus has to be. Let the Holy Spirit's power fight your battles. If you believe in it, let him fight your battles. Guess what? The result may not be what you want. Stephen didn't want to die. Up to this point, the Holy Spirit's been the best bail bondsman in Jerusalem. But guess what? Things change with Stephen. And where we pick up next time, because it's going to be about three weeks, when we pick up next time, we're going to see how God uses this to spread the gospel around the world. See, God took a bad thing and he gave us a purpose that would cha- gave it a purpose that would change the world. Do you get this? Without this moment of Stephen looking up and dying, you and I may not be here. I want you to think about that for a minute. We may not be here because without that persecution, they didn't go out from Jerusalem. Just a little tidbit going into chapter 8. This is what made them go because now they were scared to stay there. The next time something bad happens to you, can you keep your eyes focused on God and say, I don't understand what I'm going through, but maybe, just maybe, God, my bag of circumstance that doesn't end end up well is what you're going to use to bring someone else into the kingdom. Or you can just focus on the negative thing and how God's let you down. You choose. I don't care. You can be Stephen or you can be Nicholas. It's up to you. I do care, actually. You may not understand it, but God may have a purpose that you can't see. So keep your faith, keep your focus on him, and let him sort out the plans and the details that's called a mystery to us. Okay? Father, we thank you for this model you gave us. We thank you that you show us everything we need right here. Father, thank you that you're showing us that we can continue to make changes. Thank you that you've allowed us and had your grace on us to make changes and that people have wanted to make changes. Father, thank you for the trust of the people to obey your word. Father, thank you for Stephen. Made no sense. He was full of your power. And, And I could sit here in my human mind, Lord, and think, Wow, what could Stephen have done if you would have let him stay alive? But you knew he had to die so that we could be here, so that the message could go out. So, Father, help us to trust you when it doesn't make sense. Help us to trust you when we can't see your plan. And, Father, help us to keep our eyes focused on you. Just like Peter walking out on the water, if he kept his eyes on Jesus, he walked on water. But the moment he looked at the waves, he sank. So, Father, help us to quit looking at the storms and the chaos and the waves and the people and the hurt and help us keep our eyes focused on you, God, you, Jesus, you, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you fight our battles. In Yeshua's holy name we pray, amen.